Tonight we're going to look at 2 Kings chapters 21 and 22. And we're really not concerned anymore with the kings or the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Because they're gone. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken away into captivity a few chapters previous in the book of 2 Kings. Now we're looking only at the southern kingdom of Judah. And tonight we're going to speak about the reign of Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah. Uh, Let's begin here, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's maiden name, or his mother's name, was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, we are struck by the fact that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Not only is that obviously a young age at which to become king over the southern kingdom of Judah, but we also remind ourselves something about the life of his father, Hezekiah. Do you remember when the prophet brought a message to Hezekiah telling him, uh, it's time for you to die, the Lord says, get things in order in your household, I'm going to take you home, so to speak, is what God said. And his father, Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, Uh, sought the Lord, wept, humbled himself before God, and what did God do? God granted him 15 more years of life. Therefore, what does this tell you about Manasseh? Manasseh was born during these 15 extra years of Hezekiah's life. He was the child born out of a miracle, so to speak, out of this extra time that God gave him. Those Additional 15 years of Hezekiah's life brought Judah one of the worst kings it ever had. I wonder, I wonder if that good king Hezekiah, because Hezekiah was a good king, if he had been able to foresee the disaster that would come upon the southern kingdom of Judah because of the reign of his son Manasseh, who would be born in those last 15 years, if he would have changed his mind about the request to live so long. Now, I want you to notice something, though. Not only did he begin his reign, I'm speaking of Manasseh now, not only did he begin his reign when he was 12, but he reigned for 55 years. The reign of Manasseh was remarkable in both that it was very long and very evil. By the way, this reminds us of something, that a long career or a long life is not necessarily evidence of the blessing or the approval of God, right? You can say, well, obviously Manasseh was blessed. Look how long he reigned. No, 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 no. His long reign was due to other reasons, but it was not because he was a good man whom God had blessed. And then it says very plainly there in verse 2 that he did according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Manasseh imitated the sins of both the Canaanites and the Israelites of the northern kingdom. Now, this should give you a clue right here, right? We're perceptive when we read 2 Kings being 21 chapters into the book by this time, right? When we hear God saying that one of the kings imitated the sins of the nations whom God had cast out, what do we expect will happen at some time in Judah's future? 
that they will be cast out for the same sins. And this is exactly what will happen. The similar judgment would come against Judah for the similar sins of the northern kingdom of Israel and the Canaanite tribes before them. Well, beginning now at verse 3, we see a specific listing of the sins of Manasseh. It's a terrible list here, verses 3 through 9. Take a look at it with me. It says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. You see, his father Hezekiah was a great reforming king. We have been reading about the kings of Judah over and over again. He was a good king, but he did not take down the high places. He was a good king, but he did not take down the high places. We heard that description of many kings. But of Hezekiah, it was said, he was a good king, and he even took down the high places. The high places were places of unofficial worship. Uh, places where people brought sacrifices that were not to the temple in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, was remarkable for his zeal in promoting the, the true worship of the true God. Well, his son Manasseh opposed the reforms of his father Hezekiah, and he brought Judah back into terrible idolatry. It says very plainly there in verse 3, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And then it goes on to say that he raised up altars for Baal and made a wounded image. Manasseh did not want to imitate his godly father. Instead, he imitated some of the worst kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. He imitated Ahab, and he embraced the same state-sponsored worship of Baal and Asherah, who was honored with a wooden image that marked the reign of Ahab. This was a step into sin that the kingdom of Judah had not yet experienced. This was a step into sin to not only say, okay, we will allow the worship of pagan gods. That's bad, isn't it? It was even worse to say, we will officially sponsor the worship of pagan gods. Now, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they lapsed into that very quickly, especially during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, many years after it first came into the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were gone from the scene, now it's beginning to come into the southern kingdom of Judah. But, but that wasn't enough for Manasseh. It also tells us here in these verses that he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. 
he not only brought back the old forms of idolatry, he also brought new forms of idolatry into Judah. At this time, the Babylonian Empire was rising in its influence, and they probably influenced Manasseh and the kingdom of Judah to follow them in their astrological cults. And then if it could be worse, and I have to say that it is worse here, if you take a look at what it says there in chapter 21, uh, there in verse 4, it says, He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Listen, it would be bad enough to just say, all right, we've got the temple to Yahweh there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Let's make another temple for Baal or another temple for Asherah or another temple for the host of heaven. Instead, what Manasseh did was he corrupted the worship of Yahweh at his own temple with these foreign pagan altars. And then if it gets worse, you just see that the sin going worse to worse to worse. Verse 6, also he made his son pass through the fire. You understand what that means, don't you? It means that he offered his son to the Canaanite god Molech. Molech was worshipped with the sacrifice of children. They had a statue of Molech which was made of bronze or some metal which could be heated and not lose its shape. And they would heat the statue with a fire built up underneath it. And they would place a baby, usually a male child, although I assume that sometimes female children were also sacrificed in such a way. They would place a baby on the burning hot hands of the statue of Molech and they would loudly beat the drums to drown out the screams of the dying child. He made his son pass through the fire to Molech. And going on, it says that he practiced soothsaying and used witchcraft and consulted spiritists and mediums. He invited direct satanic influence by his introduction and his approval of these occultic arts, and then even set up a a carved image of Asherah in the house of the Lord, if you can believe that. Now, Asherah was the Canaanite goddess of fertility. She was worshipped by ritual prostitution. Can I just cut to the trace here? What it tells us here in verse 7, where it says that he set up a carved image of Asherah, it means that Manasseh made the temple into an idolatrous brothel. It became a house of prostitution dedicated to Asherah. And then look at what it says. If it can get even worse, it gets worse at verse 9, where it says, but they paid no attention. What does that tell you right there? It tells you that God tried to get their attention. But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This describes the basic attitude of the people of Judah during the 55-year reign of Manasseh. They paid no attention to the generous promises of God. They paid no attention to his promises of protecting his obedient people. In addition, it says there that they were seduced by Manasseh's wickedness, and they were attracted to do even more evil. You see, Manasseh was a wicked king, but perhaps I suggest to you that the greater sin in the days of Manasseh was on part of the people. It says that Manasseh seduced them, but you know, you can be seduced in a very willing way. 
Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10 says this. Listen carefully. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. God spoke to both the people and the leader, but they rejected his word. And you just scratch your head and you say, how can you have a 55-year reign of such wickedness? It's because both the king and the people were united in their wicked rebellion against God. And you have to say, what a fall in the culture from the days of Hezekiah to the days of Manasseh. This was a transformation of the culture from something that was generally God-honoring in the days of Hezekiah to something that glorified idolatry and immorality in the days of Manasseh. In general, I can tell you the reason why this happened. Oh, I mean, there were so many more specific reasons. But let me just give you the general reason why this happened. Because the people wanted it to happen. If the people would have resisted it, the king could not have forced this wickedness upon them. But because the king was wicked and the people were willing to follow in his wickedness, the culture was utterly transformed in one generation to a culture that was generally God-honoring, to a culture that was generally and grossly filled with idolatry and immorality. You can almost guess what verse 10 is going to be about, can't you? When you see a list of sins like you saw in verses 3 through 9, you can almost guess what verses 10 through 15 are going to be about, right? Look at it there. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'll wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they've done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. I find that fascinating there in verse 10. It says, the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets. You know, the leaders had abandoned God. The people had abandoned God, but the Lord still had a voice to Judah. The voice would come through his prophets to the disobedient people. And you know what's amazing about the the reign of Manasseh? I know it was a long time. I know it was 55 years. But he had an all-star team of prophets who came and spoke out against him. Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Isaiah. These were the prophets who spoke out against Manasseh. Those five verses that I just read to you tell you what their basic message was against Manasseh and the nation in those days. It says there, very plainly there, that he has acted, verse 11, more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him. Let me tell you, that's a remarkable achievement of evil. The the, the Amorites were uh, among the Canaanite tribes who populated the promised land before Israel captured it, and they were infamous for their violent, immoral, and depraved culture. But what does God say about them in verse 11? He acted more wickedly than all the Amorites. 
And then he says, I'm going to bring a judgment upon Jerusalem, verse 12, that is so great that the ears of whoever hears it, both his ears will tingle. That is an Old Testament figure of speech, meaning that an especially severe judgment is coming. It's so shocking that your ears tingle when you hear about it. And then I think it's remarkable what's said also there in verse 13. He says, I'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria. Do you remember Samaria? What was that? Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? So it's like they said this, just to use an analogy from the last 20 or 30 years of history. If you were to say, I'm going to measure over Washington the same line I used to measure over Moscow, right? I'm going to take the capital of one city and compare it to the capital of another city. And he says, I'm going to do to Samaria, excuse me, I'm going to do to Jerusalem what I've already done to Samaria, And God's logic was very simple. Listen, you can accuse God of a lot of things. You can't accuse him of being illogical. By the way, when I say you can accuse God of a lot of things, there'll be inaccurate accusations, but you can do it nonetheless. But please don't accuse God of being illogical. The logic is very simple. If Judah insisted on imitating the sins of the northern kingdom, then God would answer their sins with a similar judgment. You want to do the same sins? You'll have the same destiny. God would cleanse Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down, subjecting them to their enemies. Now, you know, it's easy for us to read this. We read it, well, yeah, okay, makes sense to me. Boy, bad, bad Judah. Honestly, though, don't we think the same way often? Don't we commit the same sins as other people and we see God chastise other people severely for those sins and then we look at ourselves and say, I think I'll get away with it. I don't think it'll happen to me. Does that logic ever work in you? I have to say, I see that, I don't know what to call it, fleshly logic, demonic logic, it's deceptive logic. Sometimes I see that same pattern of thinking in myself. I think, well, yeah, okay, boy, they're doing that sin and that's bad. Whoa, they really got chastised or they really got judged by the Lord. And and yet it's so easy to tell yourself somehow, but yeah, but not, not me. Don't you see that that's exactly what Judah was doing? They had it right in front of their mind. They saw the people of Israel being carried away with the fish hooks in their lips, along a string, stark naked, marching for hundreds of miles as they were exiled and repopulated throughout the Assyrian Empire. And they look and they go, well, we're doing the same thing, but that won't happen to us. I want you to say that, that that's such a faulty way to think, and God has to do something to shake us out of that deception. Listen, you want to imitate their sins, you'll imitate their destiny. And then if it could get worse, it does. Look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This puts Manasseh, the king of Judah, 
in the very same spiritual family as Ahab, the king of Israel. Oh, I know there was no blood connection between the two, but there was a spiritual connection between the two. Under both of these kings, as well as some others in the history of Israel and Judah, the people of God were persecuted by the religion of state-sponsored idolatry. And the extent of it was so great that it could be metaphorically said he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another with the blood of his victims. You know, if you want to trace the life of Manasseh, you see a very tragic progression in Manasseh's sin. First, idolatry was tolerated among God's people. Then, idolatry was promoted among God's people. Then, idolatry was supported and funded Then the worship of the true God was undermined. Then the worshipers of the true God were persecuted and murdered. And finally, the judgment of God would soon come. He did all this evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, traditionally, one of the evils done by Manasseh was the murder of Isaiah the prophet. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 He's listing these heroes of faith and and many of the the difficulties and persecutions they endured. And in that one line in 1137, it says, they were sawn in two. Many people believe that that was a reference to the martyrdom of Isaiah. And that Isaiah was sawn in two. Not as part of a magic act, folks. As part of killing somebody and, and executing him in this terrible uh, persecution and and reign of martyrdom, excuse me, in the days of Manasseh. So verse 17, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. This was the terrible legacy of Manasseh, who was born one of the better kings of Judah, born of Hezekiah, who was one of the better kings of Judah. Now, I have to call your attention to the phrase here in verse 17, where it says, Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Because I've let you know from time to time, as we made our way through First and Second Kings, that sometimes you can look at the book of First or Second Chronicles and it can give you some interesting additional information. Boy, does it ever with Manasseh. If we were to leave the story right here with Second Kings, you would think nothing except bad about Manasseh. W- would you be surprised to learn that in Second Chronicles, it gives you some of the good side of Manasseh? 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verses 11 through 19 describes a remarkable repentance on behalf of Manasseh. You see, because he and his people would not listen to the warnings of God, the Lord allowed the Babylonians to come and bind Manasseh and take him as a captive to Babylon. We don't hear anything about this in 2 Kings, but 2 Chronicles 33 tells us this. And it says there that when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And God answered his prayers and restored him to the throne of Judah. 
Then it tells us in Second Chronicles 33 that Manasseh proved that his repentance was genuine by taking away the idols and the foreign gods from Jerusalem. And in verse 16, Second Chronicles 33, it tells us that he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now you read that, you go, wow! This man who, if you take his reign as a whole, it was a disaster. It was 55 years of spiritual disaster as a whole. But yet, even in the midst of that tremendous darkness, at the very end of his reign, he did repent. Now, he had to be severely chastised. He had to be taken as a prisoner to Babylon. And it was only from the darkness of a Babylonian jail would his heart be brought so low that he would repent before God. But he finally did. Now, this brings several thoughts to mind. First of all, doesn't it bring up the thought to mind of Proverbs 22.6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Oh man, it took a long time for Manasseh. It took a lot of work too. But eventually, he turned his heart towards the Lord. Manasseh was raised by a godly father, yet he lived in defiance of his father's faith for most of his life. Nevertheless, at the end of his days, he truly repented and served God. In this way, it could really be said what it says there in verse 18, so Manasseh rested with his fathers. He did rest with his father. And then, secondly, I would say, that even though his repentance was not too late to save Manasseh, it was too late to save the nation. You see, he set the nation on a course of idolatry, on a course of, of, of depths of depravity from which it, it could not truly recover, except for something that we're going to see a little bit more this week and the next week. But I want you to understand that his personal repentance was not enough to change the destiny of the kingdom. Years later, when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonian, the writer blames Judah's punishment on the sins of Manasseh. So I want you to remember this. Your sin, you see, sometimes we sin with the knowledge, and it is so wicked for us to do this. It is frighteningly wicked for us to do this, to sin with the knowledge that we can repent later, right? I mean, you have to say, that is a dark spot on the heart of a child of God. But sometimes we do it, and one of the rationalizations that we use to comfort ourselves when that dark spot upon our heart appears is we say, well, look, I'm only hurting myself, and I can repent later. Might I remind you, it is extremely unlikely, I would say it is virtually, I won't say absolutely, I'll say virtually impossible, that you're only hurting yourself. And Manasseh did repent. I I don't have any hesitation. You will see this man in heaven. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a man that you see in heaven that for some reason he doesn't have much of a smile on his face or maybe a very small smile on his face because even though he did make it to heaven, he did genuinely repent. He could not undo the legacy of many decades of ungodly rule in Judah just by his own repentance at the end of his life. And so we need to remember, yes, theoretically, and again, I don't want to say it to give anybody the wrong idea, but you understand what I mean. Theoretically, you can repent, but the effect of your present sin, oh, it it will be real 
and it'll be harmful in the lives of other people. Well, let's pass to uh, Manasseh's son, Ammon. Verse uh, 19. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulmeth, the daughter of Haruz of Jothbah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and served the idols that his father had served, and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. It's sobering to read, isn't it? You know, again, I, I just can't... Maybe I wanted to leave Manasseh too quickly. But we see the influence that he had on the life of his son, right? I mean, you, you can know he didn't raise his own son in a godly way. And I imagine Manasseh speaking to his son Ammon shortly before his death. And Manasseh really has turned his heart towards the Lord now. And now he's speaking to his son Ammon. And he says, Ammon, you need to turn your heart towards the Lord. You, you, you need to repent as I repented. And Ammon is saying, well, old man, when are you going to die? You never raised me with any of this. Now you come to religion late in your life because you're afraid. Well, I'm not afraid, old man. Can't you just see that exchange between father and son? You know, I, I think we have to appreciate the message of the life of, of Manasseh in its fullness. Manasseh is an amazing testimony to the grace of God. Was his salvation fair? No. No. There's no way that a man who has lived his life sinning against God with a high hand just offending God and being in the face of God and introducing some of the worst. A man who sacrificed his own children to a Canaanite idol. There's no way that a man like that should be able to cry out to God, confess his sin, repent, and then God say, all right, I forgive you. It's not fair. But because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, by the way, when Manasseh sacrificed for his sins, he was trusting in what Jesus Christ would do on the cross for him. His faith was in the cross in the future, even as much as our faith is in the cross in the past. And we think of the riches of God's grace, the riches of God's mercy, and there's something just warm that rises up in our heart, and we say, yes, Lord, you are that filled with love. You are that filled with forgiveness. You are that great of a God. But at the same time, we're staggered at the effects of the sin. We're staggered at the effects of the sin in the life of Ammon. Did you see how long Ammon ruled? Two years. His father reigned 55 years. He reigned two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ammon sinned as Manasseh had sinned without having repented like Manasseh had repented. It's likely that one of the greatest sorrows to the repentant Manasseh was that his son's and other people who were influenced by his evil reign, that they did not repent. Matter of fact, 2 Chronicles 33, maybe you're hoping that you'll get some good news about Ammon from 2 Chronicles. I'm sorry to disappoint you. 2 Chronicles 33, 23. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. You know, you could say that he was even more accountable before God because he had the example of his father's repentance to guide him, but he rejected it. So what's going to happen to him? Verse 23. 
Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. I think we have to say it's remarkable, isn't it? Among the kings of Judah, not many of them were assassinated. Now, of the kings of Israel, man, it was almost like a flavor of the month who was going to get assassinated up there. But, but in the southern kingdom of Judah, this was rare. And this sort of conspiracy and assassination, it, it seems to belong to the reign of the kings of Israel, not Judah. But when the kings and the people of Judah began to imitate the sins of the kingdom of Israel then they slipped into the same chaos and anarchy that marked the last period of Israel's history. And it says, interestingly, that even though they, he was assassinated, and this is the first cheering word we've read in Second Kings for quite a while, it's in verse 24, where it says, but the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Now this is a hopeful sign, isn't it? Remember what I was telling you before about the people in the days of Manasseh and how the people went along with the sin and now how they uh, had to assume guilt as well? But under this hopeful sign, we see that Judah, that had largely tolerated sin in its midst for some 57 years of utterly wicked kings who led the nation in evil, now it seemed that they were sick of it and they wanted righteousness and justice instead of the evil that they had lived with for so long. You know, in some way, you could say that the people of Judah had these wicked kings for more than 50 years because that's what they wanted. And now they said, no, we're not going to stand for it anymore. But during those 50 years, you could say God, God gave them the kings that they wanted. You know, one of the worst judgments that God can put upon a people is to give them the leaders that they deserve. And, uh, you know, I suppose in every election, people have a way of saying, oh, well, this is the good guy. This is, this is the good guy to get elected, and this is the bad guy that gets elected. And, and oh, what a, what a calamity. It could never be God's will for the bad guy to get elected. Well, let me tell you, if God wants to bring judgment upon a nation, sometimes he does it by allowing bad leaders to come and lead the nation. But this was a hopeful sign in the days of Ammon when they assassinated him. And as it says there in verse 24, Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Though King Ammon was assassinated, God did not allow Judah to slip into the same pit of anarchy that Israel had sunk into. In the northern kingdom of Israel, what happened when a king was assassinated? They started a whole new dynasty, right? And so they had dis dynasties going around like a revolving door at some point. But not in the kingdom of Judah. Even though Ammon was assassinated, who became the next king? His son. Why? Because God promised that the descendants of David would always sit upon the throne. And so you could say that Ammon was a great big zero, that he contributed nothing to the good history of Israel. But let me take that back. He contributed one good thing. And that was his son, Josiah. Let's look at chapter 22 here now, verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. It's nice to read that again. 
and he walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In an unusual way, of course, because of the unusual circumstances of the assassination of his father, this boy came to the throne at eight years of age. And this was because, of course, his father was dead. And we're told the very cheering words that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, this was true of Josiah at a young age, but it's really more intended as a general description of his reign, as we're going to see in the coming chapters. Verse 3, now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah, that the king sent Shapham the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work, to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters and builders and masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However... There, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered in their hand because they deal faithfully. So this was an important stage in the reign of Josiah where he tells Hilkiah the high priest to rebuild the temple. Now, again, we're going to compare a little bit with Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles chapter 34, it tells us that this period of the repair of the temple was preceded by a definite commitment to God that Josiah made when he was 16 years old. And then he spent four years purging Judah of the icons and the idols and all the wickedness that people had built up, all the pagan altars and all the idolatrous images over many, many years. He spent four years purifying the nation. So here, get the the scenario when we put 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings together. Josiah has a wonderful commitment to God. You might call it a conversion or a calling experience when he's 16 years old. Then he spends four years cleansing the land. Now he begins to rebuild the temple. And so as it says there, it says that uh, uh, let him give it to those, the money that is, that we're in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damage of the house. Uh, Josiah understood that the work of repair and rebuilding the temple needed organization and funding. And so he paid attention to both of these needs. He commissioned Hilkiah the high priest to begin the work on the temple. By the way, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, he was the son of the priest Hilkiah. And Jeremiah began his reign, excuse me, Jeremiah didn't reign, he was a prophet. He began his ministry during the reign of Josiah. And so it's very interesting when we put these two events, these two books together, it seems that we have a purifying of the land and then this continuing reform by getting the temple in order. So look what happens when they say, okay, let's repair the temple. Verse 8, then Hilkiah the high priest said, to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that surprising? When you find the Bible in the house of the Lord. Oh, what a tragedy. What what do you know? I found a Bible. I I have to say it is a bit frightening. If If you've ever been to churches where there's not a Bible in the house, or maybe there's one, 
There's one very nice ceremonial Bible up on a prominent table at the front, but, but, but not a single person has a Bible in their hand. Not, not a single shelf there has a Bible for anybody to actually sit down and read. And why should they? They don't use it at all. And so you have to say, it's just remarkable that we read, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Woo, Eureka! You know, it's, well, anyway. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and they delivered it in the hand of those who do the work and oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Did you know that according to Deuteronomy chapter 31, that there was to be a copy of the law of Moses, the book of the law, beside the Ark of the Covenant, beginning in the days of Moses. And the kings were to each have a personal copy of the law, and he was to read it himself. And Deuteronomy chapter 31 tells us that the entire law was to be read to an assembly of the nation once every seven years at the Feast of the Tabernacles. As well, the Levites who were scattered all around the nation, they had a special responsibility to teach the law to the people of Israel. And they never did it. Well, I take that back. It's wrong to say they never did it. But obviously, by saying, we found the book of the law. And then what it says there at the end of verse 10, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Well, it's just remarkable to see the neglect of the word of God in that day. And it says there, and he read it. It seems remarkable that that, that this was even worthy of mention, that the high priest found the word of God and that a scribe read it. Yet the word of God was so neglected in those days that it was worthy of mention. I want you to notice uh, Shaphan, this man managing the work, he didn't despise the book, right? He didn't despise it, but but he didn't realize the importance of it. Let let me report to the king what's going on with the building project. Well, we'll talk about the money, and then we'll talk about the overseers, and then we'll talk about the workmen, and then, yeah, somewhere near the end, yeah, there's a book. Sadly, that's how it is in the church all too often, even in churches that teach the word of God. Oh, there's the money, and the overseers, and the workmen, and the business, and this, and that, and oh, yeah, there's a book how that priority needs to be turned around and how wonderful it was, as it says there in verse 10, that Shaphan read it before the king. This is how the word of God spreads. It it had been forgotten. It had been regarded as nothing more than an old, dusty book. Now it's found, it's read, and it begins to spread. Now listen, just stop right here at the end of verse 10. What's going to happen next? You know what's going to happen next you know that God is going to begin to move in an amazing way among his people. Because the word of God is brought before them. Throughout the history of God's people, when the word of God is recovered and spread, spiritual revival follows. It can begin as simply as it did in the days of Josiah, with one man finding and reading and believing and spreading the book. Uh, It happened that way in the days of Peter Waldo. 
Peter Waldo and his followers are sometimes known as the Valdenses. He was a rich merchant who lived around the year 1150 in France. He, he gave up his business to radically follow Jesus, and he hired two priests to translate the New Testament into the common language of the people of his day. And so when he had that Bible of the common language, he began to teach others, and he taught in the streets or wherever he could find someone to listen to him. Many common people began to hear him, and they started to radically follow Jesus Christ. He taught them the text of the New Testament in the common language, and he was rebuked by church officials for doing so. He ignored their rebukes and he continued to teach and he eventually began to send out his followers two by two into the villages and the marketplaces to teach and to explain the scriptures. And as you may have heard me say before, the Valdensians memorized the Bible. It was not unusual for a Valdensian preacher to have memorized the entire New Testament and many portions of the Old Testament. You see, the word of God, when found, read, believed and spread, it has this kind of transforming power. So, verse 11. This was the initial reaction to the discovery of the book of the law and hearing it read. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. You see, the hearing of the word of God did a spiritual work in King Josiah. It was not merely the transmission of information. The hearing of the word of God had an impact of spiritual power upon Josiah. And what did he do? He tore his clothes. Why would somebody tear their clothes? The tearing of clothes in that culture was a traditional expression of horror and astonishment. In the strongest possible terms, Josiah showed grief on his account and on account of the nation. This was an expression of deep conviction of sin. And might I say, without hesitation, it was a good thing. And you have to say that in revival, in times of spiritual awakening, not only is the word of God restored to a rightful place, but also there is a deep expression of the conviction of sin. There's many occasions of this throughout the history of revival. One of the favorite ones that I've heard before, recorded by Dr. J. Edwin Orr in his book, The Second Evangelical Awakening in Britain. He records that how at a prayer meeting, a very strong-looking young man who had been coming to, to many of the meetings but had never given his life to Jesus Christ, he was there at the meeting and resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit very, very powerfully. Well, his wife would have no more of it. And so she uh, called out at the prayer meeting for prayer to be offered for her husband. She, she, she said, sending the prayer request up on a written note up to the front, that the request read, a, a converted wife requests prayer for her backslidden and unconverted husband. And so the minister standing at the front of the prayer meeting, he read the prayer request. And he said, a, a, a praying and converted wife requests prayer for the conversion of her backslidden and unconverted husband. Instantly, the strong man who had been resisting the Holy Spirit stood up and he started to weep and he said, that's my wife. I have a praying wife and I'm not converted. 
Would somebody please tell me how, how I can find Jesus? Before that man had finished speaking, another man stood up. And he said, as if completely oblivious to the first man who had stood up, he said, that's my wife, I know it. I have a praying wife at home. I, I know she wants me to be saved. Five men stood up and requested prayer. Now again, you say, that's crazy. It makes no sense, Right? Any one of those men says, well, one's gone up. It couldn't have been my wife. Two have gone up. It certainly couldn't have been my wife. But the reaction of the men showed something about the conviction of the Holy Spirit in times of revival is that it goes beyond logic. It's a unique outpouring. By the way, this conviction of sin is the special work of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 8, he said, and when he has come he will convict the world of sin. Isn't that what we do when we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the unconverted? We're really praying, convict them of their sin, Lord, because you promise that when the Holy Spirit comes upon the world, that he will convict them of their sin. So, after being convicted of his sin and tearing his clothes, what did King Josiah do next? Look at verse 12. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is roused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now listen, I find it striking that he called other people, he called spiritual leaders into him, and he said, go inquire of the Lord for me. I don't think it was because King Josiah didn't know how to seek God for himself. Remember, there had been real spiritual renewal in his life for several years before this. I don't think he didn't know how to do it for himself. I think it was that he was so much under the conviction of sin that he just didn't know what to do next. So he said, please inquire of the Lord again. For us, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. He knew that the kingdom of Judah deserved judgment from God. He, he could not hear the word of God and respond to the spirit of God without seriously confronting the sin of his kingdom. So, verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhus, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who has sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity upon this place and on its inhabitants and all the words of the book which the kings of Judah have read because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Very interesting, isn't it? We don't know very much about this woman called Huldah the prophetess. She is mentioned here and in a similar account in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. But with apparently the approval of King Josiah, Hilkiah the priest consulted this woman for spiritual guidance. It wasn't because of her own wisdom and spirituality, but because she was recognized as a prophetess and that she could reveal the heart and the mind of God. And it's interesting, there were other prophets in Judah at this time. 
Jeremiah was there. Zephaniah was there. Yet for whatever reason, maybe it was a practical reason, maybe it was a spiritual reason, they sought out Huldah the prophetess. I think this is very interesting here. Just to remind us that God can use anybody. Right? God can use this woman. Why not? God can use anybody. You, you wouldn't think, well, the go-to guy, you've got to go to Jeremiah, right? He's the high-profile prophet. Or if not Jeremiah, then at least go to Zephaniah. I mean, at least he has a book of his in the Bible. No, God can go to obscure people. God can use anyone. But the promise was there that he would bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. Josiah knew that Judah deserved judgment and that the judgment would indeed come. Judah and its leaders had walked against the Lord for too long. And God knew that if they did not genuinely repent, they could not escape this eventual judgment. But look at verse 18. But as for the king of Judah, who has sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. You see, I like what it says there in verse uh, 19. Because your heart was tender. Josiah's heart was tender in two ways. First of all, it was tender to the word of God and was able to receive the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it was tender to the message of judgment that came from Huldah in the previous verses. You know, think about Josiah in this place. He, he says, oh Lord, I want to repent. Please, don't bring the judgment that you promised to bring upon your disobedient people. And the message comes back from Huldah. No, the judgment is going to come. Now, th- don't you think Josiah could have been very fatalistic about it? Huh, judgment's going to come, then who cares? Let's just, you know, party on, Right? Nothing we can do about it anyway. That wasn't Josiah's heart. His heart was tender towards the Lord, and he received this word of impending judgment. Therefore, God says, listen, you're not going to see all the calamity. God says, I'm going to delay the judgment that is to come. The wickedness of the nation of Judah had built up so greatly during the bad years of Manasseh that judgment was coming that could not be stopped. But it could be delayed. And Josiah's righteousness would delay it. So he says, you'll be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. This was God's mercy to Josiah. His own godliness and tender heart could not stop this eventual judgment. But as it said before, it could delay it. Inevitable judgment is sometimes delayed because of the tender hearts of the people of God. Now, once Josiah hears this word from the Lord, okay, Lord, you saw my tender heart. You promised that I'm going to go to my grave in peace. You promised that the calamity that's going to come will not come until after I'm dead. Then who, you know, 
all right, at least we're off the hook during my reign. Was that Josiah's attitude? No. We're going to see next time, in the following chapters, how he grabs reform and revival with both hands, and he says, let's turn back to the Lord. It's a glorious thing. But don't miss where it began, right? It all began with hearing the word of the Lord. And uh, that's wonderful about what we do here when we come together to study the word of God. We should come together with a great sense of faith and anticipation that God will work and God will do wonderful things in our life as we get together and study his word. He's promised to do so. We've seen it happen in the past and we've seen it happen in our own lives. You've heard the verse, without faith it is impossible to please God. Sometimes I think we don't bring enough faith to our study of God's word. Oh, not that we don't believe the words on the page, but we don't anticipate a wonderful move of his spirit as we give attention to his word. It's what happened in the days of Josiah. It's what happened in the days of Peter Valdo. It's what's happening in our own day if we'll open up our eyes and see it. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his word. Lord, what a contrast we've seen tonight between the wicked reign of Manasseh, his godly repentance at the very end, the totally wicked reign of Ammon, and then Lord Josiah, whose heart was tender towards you. Lord, that's our prayer, that you would make our hearts more and more tender towards you, and that you would fill us with greater faith to expect great things from your word to come forth. This is our prayer. This is our hope. This is our confidence. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.